You can see from the notice sheet, um, from the term card, that I'm not going to attempt to preach that entire passage today. It's been split up into three parts, and my dear wife, Nicola, one of the vicars here in our team, is going to tell you all about suffering and perseverance and character, of which I'm sure she's an expert, um, having been married to me for 14 years now. Uh, I'm going to focus in on verses 1 and 2, and uh, we're going to be looking at Romans through uh, five cameos today, five cameo stories, uh, picking up these difficult words like justified, which just basically means just as if I'd never uh, sinned, uh, and what it means to have peace and grace with God. So let's pray and get into the passage together. Father, we pray that your holy words will be holy to us today. Pray that your life will be in it and in us, that you'll breathe hope and a sense of your glory to us, and give every person here a peace with God which we so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen. So our two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Cameo one, Rome. I don't know if you've been to Rome. We went on honeymoon years ago. It's a sort of place where you can get knocked over by a fiat before you've said, um, hola, or no, Spanish, isn't it? It's a sort of place where it's just rambling and rambling around. You can imagine Thousands of years ago, the chariots doing exactly the same thing, sort of running haywire through the town. But life in Rome was not all luxurious Roman baths, marble, and mosaics. It was also the place where apartment living, many of us know about that, was invented. And uh, you could have a squatted flat above a ground floor shop, moving from luxury to squalor in a few vertical steps. The church there would have begun probably on the day of Pentecost, When people had gathered to to Jerusalem, heard Peter preach, and then gone back to the capital of the universe, Rome. And they would have started up a church based with Jewish believers, and then gradually Gentiles coming in as well. But 15, 16 years later, according to Suetonius, the historian, Emperor Claudius of Rome expelled Jewish people from Rome because of a dispute over the name of Crestus which sounds remarkably like the Latin for Christus, um, for Christ. With these Jewish Christians taken far away from the theatre and portico of Pompeii, from the Circus Maximus and forums of Caesar and Augustus, only the non-Jewish background believers would have been left there to contend for the faith and try and work out what was going on. All around them would have been temples, uh, worship of Mars, Saturn, Castor, Pollux, Vesta, Venus, Apollo, Jupiter, among many others. They would have been meeting in small household churches. Everyone else trying to get their God to do something for them or not do something that they deserved to them. And this provokes our first key question from this cameo. And the key question is this. Are you somewhere where your faith life is hard to grow because of what surrounds you? Are you somewhere where your faith life is hard to grow because of what surrounds you? Maybe you are in London, in your context, in home. The people that you live with, the, uh, the people you work for or work under might make it tough to grow. But let's not fear. The church in Rome grew incredibly. 
And I was reading while on holiday this week uh, the biography of a man called Michael Green, one time vicar of St. Aldate's in Oxford, where Tom Barber is now. And he spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, where uh, some friends of us have just joined from, from Malaysia, from uh, KL. And one of the things he looked at was the Diocese of Singapore and the surrounding diocese, and saw how in their situation, every adversity really was placed on them. There were constraints on evangelism, there were constraints on mission, there were constraints uh, from, from Islamic fundamentalists and all sorts of things. And yet in the crest of God's wave of revival and great leadership, the churches there have grown vibrantly. And that's exactly what was happening in Rome as well. Paul's writing to them, probably in AD uh, 57, uh, eight years after that expulsion. It's for, he's writing from the vibrant young city of Corinth. And there's so much that I could tell you about Corinth and Paul that I'm going to do a whole year-long series on it on Friday. So listen in on it on the podcasts. It's an amazing couple of books that he wrote to them. Uh, we only have two of the three he probably wrote. The Jewish believers would have got back to Rome by now. Uh, Paul's not come to visit them yet. He's telling them about a visit he wants to make to them, and he's getting them ready. But they're in a hard situation, and their faith is growing, and they're getting things together. That's cameo one, Rome. Are you surrounded by people which make it hard for your faith to grow? Don't worry, God conquers everything. Cameo two, the Apostle Paul. Now, I wonder if you've ever stopped to get someone's autograph. Any autograph hunters in the room today? Anyone going to admit to, to being one of those people? Richard at the back there? He's, uh, I'll, I'll sign for you later, my friend. <laughs> no problem. Um, but I, I got an autograph recently. Uh, right here in this church, there was an actor who's going to be a great um, celebrity, no doubt, here in the holiday club, uh, a young chap called Joel. He's nine years old. But he's got one of the leading roles in Mary Poppins II, Mary Poppins Returns, or whatever they've called it. And uh, he's, he's written me this here. He said he's never done an autograph before, uh, but he's written To Richie from Joel. And uh, I'm going to treasure that. One day it'll be worth millions. <laughs> when Paul signed his letters, it made a big difference. Normally he dictates his letters. This one he dictated to someone called Tertius. But when he puts his signature on the end of it, that's it. It's got authority. It's got Paul's apostolic authority. But who was this guy, Paul? He didn't always have great authority. He didn't always even have the peace with God described in our verse. In fact, when he encountered Jesus Christ in a life-changing way, he was described by Jesus in a phrase called kicking against the goats. <laughs> now, that's not a very common image here in West London. But if you're out in agricultural medieval uh, hinterlands, it would be very common because the goads were the things you put around the oxen in order to constrain their heads to walk in the right way. And if you were a particularly thick oxen, you'd go like this <laughs> and, uh, and give yourself a slap on the face a lot of times because you're trying to get away from where the goad's steering you. Now, actually, in life, we all need a goad. <laughs> we need a certain amount of direction. Book of Proverbs say if you train a child in the way they should go, uh, they'll carry on in that way. Kipling said, if you give me a child till they're seven years of age, I'll give you the man. We need a certain amount of goads just to sort of hold us together. And God's provided these goads for Paul, but he's pushing against it. He doesn't like what's going on. And I wonder if, our second key question, if there's someone here struggling against God, but not even realising you're doing it. Paul hadn't realised he'd been struggling against God. Have you been kicking against the goads? 
Keep trying to go your own way and it hurts when you've turned to the right and the left. Have you been pushing in the wrong direction again and again repeatedly? Paul had been in turmoil, but he didn't know it. Later, he described himself as a blasphemer and a violent man. But at that particular time that he was converted to following Christ, he saw himself as a good man keeping the rules and making sure no one else threatened the order of rules. You rarely meet someone in London who doesn't see themselves as a good person. <laughs> How many people have you clocked up to going, yes, I've, I've got problems? <laughs> Probably only people towards the end of their tether, one way or another. Actually, sometimes we have to get to the end of the tether before we can admit our need for God. Paul didn't. He got whacked around the face instead. He met Jesus in a blinding vision on the road to Damascus. He was blinded for three days, during which time he fasted and prayed. And humbled, when someone came and offered to pray for him, he accepted the prayer. In the name of Jesus, he was healed and was commissioned to proclaim the good news of Christ and to suffer it along the way. His faith in Jesus made him right with God, where his zeal and hard works had set him against God. And what did he do? Well, he starts to try and teach people about Jesus straight away. And amazingly and encouragingly, if you're a professional Christian, as a, as a, as a terrible description of what we are, um, he was pretty rubbish at it to begin with. He'd try and persuade everyone using his incredible knowledge of the Old Testament, uh, but quickly he was, uh, he, was, he was brought out of town and had to be lay, let down out of the town on, in a basket and escape into a desert training school for about three years where God rewired him and taught him more about grace and how to hope in the glory of God. Paul had to be changed dramatically um, by God along the way. And um, paper's in the right order. Okay. Um, wonderful. Some years later, having not been that great at it and having been to a theological cemetery in the desert, the great encourager Barnabas invited him to help teach. He gave him a lifeline. He said, come and help this church in Antioch. The two of them got along great, and then they were sent out to do missionary work. And at this point, Paul seems to get supercharged. And accompanying him in his ministry, being sent out of his comfort zone, miracles accompany him, signs and wonders accompany him. The gospel is proved by extraordinary miracles that God does through Paul. He's a misunderstood figure um, who was struggling against God without realising it. Cameo 3. Chapter 4 of Romans, just before our passage, picks up on one character, Abraham. Now, <coughs> Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, hadn't heard about Moses, he hadn't heard about the Ten Commandments, he hadn't heard about uh, the burning bush, he hadn't heard about Isaiah's vision or prophecy of a coming Messiah. He'd never heard, never heard of Nazareth or Galilee. He'd not seen a miracle done by Jesus. He'd never heard the Sermon on the Mount or said the Lord's Prayer. But he had an encounter with God. He left his home, went off on a thousand-mile pilgrimage, stopped on the way due to the pressures of his family, and then pressed on when he could. And then God told him this. He said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many people. And then comes some of the most important words in the whole Old Testament. And Abraham believed God. And it was added to his account as righteousness. Here's his deficit. He's been making all these withdrawals, as we all do. And suddenly righteousness gets added to his account. And he's in the black again. We're all in the red, all in debt. He believes God. 
and it becomes righteousness. He's okay again. Great words written not just for him, but for us. And so our key question from Abraham is this. Where has God encountered you? And what has he asked you to trust him in? I remember the story of a teenager who was in a car uh, on drugs and drink. And the others in the car on drugs and drink as well. And they had a crash. And it was, it was about to catch fire. And a peace came over this teenager. And he, at the camp that he'd been on in the summer, he had heard about Jesus. A peace came into his life. And sobered up entirely, he was able to open the car door, get out of the car and get away from the car and bring his friends away from the car before uh, something terrible happened to them all. Incredible peace came over him. He's not now a follower of Jesus. Many people have encounters with God and don't respond to him. Where we go in, in India, many people are healed dramatically and delivered from all sorts of things. But only a certain percentage come to faith in Christ and follow him as they should. Where's God been knocking on the door of your heart, giving you a moment, an encounter, and have you responded to him? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to his account. Have you trusted in the Lord? Cameo for Martin Luther. 1517 was a big year for the church. Uh, 500 years ago, I think, if my math is vaguely right. It might be more than that, 600 years ago. Um, something like that. Six, is that 600 years? 500 years ago. Oh, there you go. Um, anyway, the church in Europe had become a mixed place. There were some lights, some luminaries, some great believers, no doubt. But for many people, they put their trust in works, something called indulgences and religious rituals. The church had abused its incredible place in society, making modern-day millions out of the desperate and seemingly damned. Martin Luther was one of the monks at that time. One of the things he tried to do to get right with God was climb on his knees up the, up the steps of a great church, repenting on every step on the way. Now, on the one hand, that's a great revelation of how holy God is. Imagine the impact on the atmosphere in church if we all came in, knowing that we didn't deserve to be here, that God was other and holy. And we had no right of our own to be in his presence, not us presuming on him. But on the other hand, it's a terrible loss of vision of a God who is Father and invites us into his presence and longs for us to come home. And he got reading the book of Romans and he read that he could be saved by faith by trusting in Jesus alone. It changed the course of the church in Europe, reviving both the Catholic and Protestant churches eventually. When he read in Romans that the righteous will live by faith, it changed his life and changed history. And this is what he writes about the book of Romans we're now studying. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is the purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize its 16 chapters word for word, but also to occupy themselves with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of their soul. It is impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It is in itself a bright light, almost bright enough to illumine the entire scripture. Simon Ponsonby, in our book of the term, uh, God is for us on sale in the bookshop, tells a story about an SAS instructor called Mark, a new believer in Christ, who takes the book of Romans and a book of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones on Romans, on tour with him, while working and running the infamous Belize Jungle Warfare Training School. There and later in Bosnia, he would simply read these sermons out loud 
uh, on Romans, in prison camps. And people came to Christ, and he got more and more converted. Read about it in the book of the term. Augustine of Hippo was converted from a troubled and troublesome life when he heard a child's voice over a fence say, pick it up and read it. And then he looked down and saw Paul's words in a scroll left on a bench and had his soul filled with peace and light. So the next question is, will you pick it up and read it? Will you memorize it? Will you let it feed your soul? I remember learning this uh, couple of paragraphs in chapter 5 as a new believer, and it's fed my soul for 22 years. Knowing these words, they come back to me again and again. Will you memorize and feed on these words of Scripture so that hope will not disappoint you? Final cameo. Sometimes vicars are a bit messed up. I don't know if you realize that. (laughs) Obviously, no visual aids on display here today. Um, But one such messed up vicar was John Wesley. In his teens and early 20s, he'd gone to town on religion to such extremity that one of his followers probably died from overfasting. He was inspired by a book by William Law called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And he and his brother Charles and George Whitfield and others had done everything possible to get right with God. They'd studied, they'd prayed, they'd slept in equal measure. They'd done a load of social outreach, prison visiting, and occasionally had time to eat. He got ordained in the Church of England in his 20s and went on mission to the new world of the United States of America. Or just America in those days. On the way, he found he could not say that he had peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Tossed around in a small boat, he feared to die. He was not ready as a clergyman to face his maker. But he noted on the boat some continental Christians from Europe, Moravians, who faced their fear with equilibrium. They knew that nothing could separate them from the love of God. Not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not depths, not even the depths of a stormy sea. These uneducated outcasts had a peace with God that John Wesley could only dream of. He couldn't shake off this encounter with the Moravians. It was only years later, on the 24th of May, 1738, at Aldersgate Street, here in central London, more than 10 years after his ordination as a clergyman, that change came. Again, it was these Moravians. They were reading out loud Martin Luther's preface to the Book of the Romans. And as they read that we can be made right with God by faith, justified by faith, as they read that we can have peace with God, as they read that we can gain access into a grace in which we now stand, His heart was changed. He said it was strangely warmed. What he'd been longing for for decades, now in his mid-30s, he was experiencing. He was never the same again. He was not afraid to die. He had an assurance that he was right with God, and right with God because of Jesus Christ. So our fifth big question is this. Are you... And hear the question right, are you afraid to die? Not are you afraid of dying, it's natural to fear some of the processes of of disease or decay. But are you afraid of what comes next? Are you afraid of what comes next? Or do you have an assurance, a blessed assurance, that Jesus is mine? That I have a foretaste of glory divine? Do you know that your sins have been taken away from you? 
Do you know that when you stand before the gates of God, you have a right to go into his heaven, not because you've tried hard or done religion things or been goodish, but because of Jesus. Do you know that you're free from sin? Do you know that you are saved? In Jesus' own words, do you know that you have been born into a whole new life again? You are not the same person you were. You are a whole new person, a new creature. Do you know, friends, that you are his and he is yours? In other words, are you a Christian, a Christian, a saved one, someone who has been justified by faith through his grace? Are you his? Is he yours? Are you going to heaven? There's no bigger question in the world. Are you scared of what happens next? Because if so, be honest. And I'd love to invite you to leave those fears behind today. To wave them away. Like a ship flying off into the night. Like a plane leaping away from the airport. Knowing that you're his, knowing that he's yours, knowing that you've been saved because of the cross of Jesus, and nothing can separate you from his love. Are you scared to die? Be scared no longer. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in him, and all will be well. So, we've examined... A few key questions. We've asked ourselves whether we live in a place where faith life is hard to grow. And reminded ourselves that churches that know the gospel of Jesus, small groups that know the gospel of Jesus, places where we're prepared to put the gospel of Jesus into action, life comes. People are changed and transformed. A couple of weeks ago, at the six o'clock service, I was sharing the story of someone from this congregation who wrote to us and said, in this last year, my life has been utterly changed. I'm so thankful for this church. I've been brought from death to life. Is your faith life hard to grow where you are? Make sure you're connected to people who know how to grow with God and keep growing. We asked, are you someone struggling against God, kicking against the goads like Paul was? If so... Maybe it's time to stop. We asked, has there been a moment where God's asked you to trust him? Some encounter in your life that you've never quite acted on yet. May even be this sermon. There's someone knocking on the door of your heart saying, will you let me in? What are you going to do about that moment? We've asked, will you pick it up and read? Will you get Romans and read, even if it's just the verse of the week? And learn it so it imbibes your soul and feeds you and you feed others through it. And we've asked this big question, are you afraid to die? To bring it all together, look down with me at the passage for a moment. Just these two verses. Page 1132. Or maybe you've brought your study Bible with you so you can study it more intently. It says this. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Three very, very quick things from this passage. What we have, why we have it, and what it makes we do. 
What we have, if you're a believer in Jesus, is peace with God and grace to stand in. There is nothing more precious than peace with God. You may not before today have realized that you didn't have peace with God. But as we saw at the end of the reading we have read to us, actually all of us have been God's enemies. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been fighting with him, against him all our lives. Each one of us have at times shut him out, ignored him and gone our own way time and time again. It's like we've sat around the dinner table with him, ignoring him and giving him the stony-faced teenager treatment or the toddler tantrum throwing our food on the floor. Hey, even if we've done that to our own parents, we've dishonoured our parents and broken one of God's laws. All of us have been God's enemies. That's our positional place with the God who loves us, made the world, and created us for his glory. And yet... He loves us while we were still his enemies. He died for us. And he calls us to come and be in peace with him now. And we have grace. We have this glorious grace, like the prodigal son had when he returned home, like the older brother could have had if he'd just realized what was on offer for him. We have grace, peace and grace. Why do we have peace and grace? We have peace and grace because of God's mercy because of his son Jesus, and more on that in a couple of weeks' time. That's why we can have peace with God. And what does this peace and grace through Jesus make us do finally? This is what it makes you do. It makes you breathe easy. It makes you breathe easy. Peace and grace are wonderful cities to live in. Knowing that you're not at war with God anymore means you can be at peace with yourself. No longer does that nagging voice in your head have to be dominant. Your father's telling you that you weren't good enough. The absenteeness of a key figure in your life. The person who told you you were stupid at school. The person who looked down on you, the person you couldn't keep up with the brother or sister who made you feel rubbish about yourself. None of those voices need to dominate any more. You can have peace with yourself because you have peace with God. They're wonderful cities to live in. And we also have a hope of the glory of God. So my final question to leave you with is, do you have a hope of the glory of God? When you look down the lens of your life, forward are you smiling is there joy ahead of you do you know that your past has been sorted out your present is okay and your future is assured do you have hope in his glory and if you can't say yes to any of those questions I'd love to invite you just a second to bow your head and pray a very simple prayer I'm going to be offering this prayer One of the team will every week this month. This is a very simple prayer. It's just thank you, sorry, please. Thank you for loving me, God. Thank you for caring for me. I'm sorry that I chose to go my own way. Please forgive me and come into my life. And do you know, if anyone prays that prayer, there's an enormous party that starts in heaven. The angels start rejoicing 
There's bells ringing and everyone's celebrating on mass. Every time someone comes back to you. It's a bit like Tinkerbell in the Peter Pan story. You know, Charles says your name and <laughs> claps. You come alive. Well, actually, this time you literally do come alive when you pray a prayer saying, I want you first in my life, God. I want our Lord Jesus Christ in my life. So this is the prayer. Listen to it once. And if you want to make it your own, pray. And that peace will be yours through Christ. Father, thank you for your incredible love for me that I've just heard about, that Jesus would die for me. I'm sorry for the things that have got between me and you. Moments I've ignored you, not put you first. Please come into my life today and make me yours and you mine. Amen. If you'd like to pray that, I'm going to pray that again and just make it your own in your heart. And come and tell me afterwards. Thank you, Lord, so much that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. Sorry that I have been your enemy. And for my sins. Please forgive me and bring me home to you. In Jesus' name, amen.